This morning we're going to be preaching from Matthew 28. We began with a missions discussion in Sunday school, and I want to continue that in chapter 28 of Matthew. William Carey is known as the father of modern missions. He was a missionary to India who spent 41 years there without a furlough. God used him to convert some 700 Indians and lay a foundation of biblical translation, education, and social reform that would lead and impact India for decades to come. He was the first, his first great impact actually started a year before he left for the field. In 1792, it seemed that the church of his day found a way to explain away their responsibility and obligation to the Great Commission. And thus the, man, the, the missionary manifesto that, that is famous and, and changed the missions world, so to speak, an inquiry into the obligations of Christians to the use of means for the conversion of the heathen, heathens. It's a mouthful, to say the least. And, and the founding of this great organization, the particular Baptist Society for Propagating the Gospel to the Heathen, was formed. And among its charter members, Andrew Fuller, John Ryland, and John Sutcliffe. This set forth a new beginning for evangelical world missions. Amazing to see God powerfully at work through these men. Particular Baptists of Carey's day could explain away their responsibility to obey Christ's command of making disciples of all nations because they said it was descriptive of the 11 disciples who were present at Galilee and not prescriptive to all disciples who had been, and it had been fulfilled in the first century, particularly in the book of Acts, as we see the gospel moving from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You, if, you, if you know them, those famous words ought to ring in your head when the older pastor at the association speaks to Carrie and he says, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do so without consulting me or you. We can hardly conceive of this thought in our day in particular because of men, I think, like Carrie and the influence that they've had in churches and in global mission. But you know, I wonder how many of us have this same spirit today, have the same spirit of this older pastor. We might not say the same words or even have the same wrong theological justification, but functionally, do you live with the same spirit as this older, older pastor? Do you live with an attitude that cares not about the works of God in his world? Do you live with a heart that cares nothing about God's elect whom he has chosen who have, but have yet to receive the gospel in Christ? Do you live with hands that stay busy with your own affairs as more important than obedience to the Lord's great commission? I would say that our mouths might deny that we functionally reject this command, but our actions and our idle words show us otherwise. Before Jesus ascended to the right hand of his father's throne, he commanded the disciples to continue the work that he began in them, even to the end of the age. 
Making disciples must be a priority for the church. I want to look today at God's Word together as we see why. Why is this a priority for the whole church, for the whole age? If you haven't already, turn with me to Matthew 28. We're going to look particularly at verses 18 through 20 together. Let's read Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me pray for us before we go forward. Father, would you give us a vision for what you've done in your word? Help us to have our minds set on things above, not on earth, where Christ dwells, for he has died and has risen. He is our king. It's him who we worship. It's your spirit who dwells in us that we might call to mind all the things that have been written for our good and for your glory that we might follow you, Lord Jesus. And we ask today that you would help us to see what it means to make disciples. That you've called us to this. That you've transformed us for this purpose. That we might be useful in your hands as your instruments of grace. Lord, help us and help me. Fill me with your spirit that I might preach your word with faithfulness. And that your people might be encouraged and edified and transformed more into the image of Jesus as you have meant for it to be because you wash your church, your bride, with your word. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. So, making disciples of all people should be the priority of the whole church for the whole age. Each word there is important and I want to break it down over uh, as we as we look at Matthew chapter 28 each gospel ends and acts begins with the priority of the great commission for the whole church and our focus today is on Matthew 28 simply because it's the most de detailed and most explicit great commission text in all of the gospels there are three realities in this text that help us to see why making disciples of all people should be the priority for the whole church and the whole age and I want to work through this passage, helping us to see that Jesus sets this great commission as, this, as a priority, even for us. So four implications we'll end with um, at the, as our sort of application after we look at these three principles or three uh, points in the text. So I want to give them to you up front just so that you can know what to listen for as we work through 28, 18 through 20 today. So. Making disciples of all peoples should be a priority for the whole church or for the whole age because it comes from all authority with a lasting presence, with his lasting presence. Number two, because it is delivered to every disciple till the end of the age. And then number three, because it can only be carried out by the church as a whole. So those three things. Let's begin as we... As we begin, though, let's, let's look at 
Matthew 28, 18 through 20 in its proper context in the whole chapter. So if you would back up with me to verses 1. We're going to just walk through chapter 28 together. We find a disheartened group of disciples having been having deserted and denied their master. They're hidden in the shadows of locked and silent rooms, fearful and alone, hopeless. All of their hopes for a Messiah to destroy their evil oppressor and to establish his kingdom dashed, or so they thought. Chapter 28, verse 1 begins with Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, who had come shortly after the dawn of the first day of the week, Sunday, to the tomb of Jesus. It appears that they wanted to see the grave and grieve over their beloved Savior. They thought they had come to see the dead, but instead of seeing a dead man, they saw an angel of the living God. Verse 5, the angel says to them, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is or has risen. Such a beautiful pronouncement from this angel. The angel gave them instructions to tell the disciples this news and to go to Galilee, where Jesus himself would meet them. And in verse 9, we see they ran away in joy to go and tell the others. Jesus himself meets them on the way. He affirms this message from the angel to these two women, and he comforts them, and they take hold of him, and they worshiped him. Jesus doesn't deny his deity here. He accepts their worship as right. He, it is the proper time for worship, and He is the proper recipient of worship. And then He gives them clear instructions in verse 10, just as the angel gave. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. From these two women, the news reaches the ears of the eleven disciples, and likely more. Paul makes reference to this. We don't know this for sure, but he alludes in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, more than 500 witnesses saw Jesus resurrected. Verse 16, upon hearing this news, a fearful yet now joyous band of disciples go to meet Jesus on the mountain in Galilee as he had directed them. Galilee, for some of us might know this, it's about 70 miles from Jerusalem. It's not a, it's not a simple jump. When, it, when you read the text, it's like, okay, it's right there. No, it's, it's 70 miles away. This would likely have taken them a few days to get to Galilee. Likely enough time to propagate the false news that we see in 11 through 15, developed by the guards and the elders that the disciples stole his body. But that's not true. Verse 17, what do we see? Arriving in Galilee, likely days later, who do they find? They find Jesus alive, just as he said he would be. And this reality, this news affirmed now by sight, produced a response in them. How did they respond? It says they worshipped. They worshipped. The majority of them fell on their knees in worship before their now risen Lord and Savior. But it's accompanied with these strange words that ought to set us back. It's like deflating. We've got this climactic moment. And then, what does it say in the last part of 17? But some doubt it. It seems crazy to us to think that anyone would have doubted upon seeing the resurrected Savior. Most commentators believe that those who doubted is referring to others that were not the eleven. Others, perhaps amongst the five hundred. The text doesn't explicitly say so, we don't know. Perhaps, 
perhaps just some thoughts amongst those who doubted. Perhaps they, those, those were among them, people who be, didn't believe this was really Jesus before them. Maybe they were not close enough to see him. They just thought this wasn't, this is not him. We saw him. He died. Or perhaps it was some that actually thought, yeah, he was crucified, but he didn't die there. This is him swooned. Now he's here before us. Or perhaps some of them thought this was him, but not bodily. This was his spirit before us. I say all of those because heresies from the first century until today still propagate those very ideas. But all those who knew and had really been with Jesus, those who had been transformed by Jesus, those who came to Jesus because the Father drew them to his Son, the eleven for certain, they show us a proper response to the resurrected Savior. They worshiped, and so should we. A right response to the doctrinal truths about the death and resurrection of Jesus should lead us to worship. Theology is meant to lead us to doxology. Knowledge of God is meant to lead us to worship God. And it's here in verse 18 that Jesus opens his mouth to speak. He says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And here's the first point I want us to focus on and notice here in our text. Making disciples of all peoples should be the priority of the whole church for the whole age. The priority because, number one, it comes from all authority with a lasting presence. It comes from all authority with a lasting presence. I want us to look at the frames of this passage for a second. What do I mean by that? The all authority has been given to me is one side of the frame. And the other side is, and behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the other side of the frame. Let's look at these. Let's start with the first. What does Jesus mean when he says all authority has been given, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me? By what authority did Jesus heal the sick? By what authority did Jesus cast out demons? By what authority did he calm storms and have command of nature? By what authority did he forgive sins of wayward sinners? He has always had this authority. And people like the Pharisees and Sadducees have been asking him these questions all along. By what authority, Jesus? Do you do these things? The only other place in Matthew's gospel that Jesus uses these words, or these words are used about Jesus of all authority, has been given to me is in Matthew 11, verses 27. He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. We don't have eyes to see Jesus unless Jesus opens our eyes. We don't have ears to hear unless Jesus unstops our ears. We don't have hearts that beat unless Jesus revives our hearts. And then Jesus says these sweet words in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. By what authority does Jesus command his disciples here in Matthew 28:18 to go and to make disciples of all peoples? 
by the authority of God the Father. This is exactly the kind of authority of subjecting all things under his feet that the Father speaks about when he promises to the Son in Psalm 8, you have made him a little lower than the angels, the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Paul seems to pick up on this theme in his prayer in Ephesians 1.19. He says, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Making disciples of all peoples should be the priority of the whole church for the whole age because we are commanded from the authority of God the Father, which is given to God the Son, who is seated at his right hand on his throne with all power and dominion and authority all over all things which have been subjected to him as his reward for being worthy to open the scroll, as John puts it in Revelation 5, because of his death and because of his resurrection. By what authority do we make this our aim to bring all things in subjection to Jesus, our head? By what authority do we proclaim Christ as the only way, only truth, only life, to whom all must come through to come to the Father? By what authority do we as a church bind and loose in baptism in the Lord's Supper to correct, to rebuke, to admonish, to teach, to discipline those who are in Christ and call those outside of Christ to repentance? By what authority? By the authority of God. By the authority of the Creator of all things. The one who fills all in all. By His authority we live. By His authority we preach. By His authority we pray. This is the authority of Jesus. Priority because it comes from all authority. What about the second part of this frame? It comes from all authority with a lasting presence, with his presence. Look at verse 20. And behold, Jesus says, I will be with you even to the end of the age. Priority because this command comes with a lasting presence. I will be with you, Jesus says. The reason I connect this with priority is because this also, much like verse 18, is an authoritative statement. Why do I say that? Well, think with me. Where else does Jesus connect his presence with his authority or authority with his presence? In Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is another place. There's multiple, but this is one where Jesus tells his disciples about his special authoritative presence in church matters. I'm going to just read through 15 through 20 real quick. If your brother sins against you, go and tell, them, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. that Every charge may be established with the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask 
I, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Jesus' authority. Now here's his presence. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Authority and presence connected right here. When the church gathers in Christ's name, his authoritative presence is among them to do particular things related in Matthew 18. In this case, it's a discipline. Those who refuse to repent. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. This is a statement like Matthew 18, an authoritative statement to bind and to loose, to proclaim forgiveness of sins, to hand someone over to Satan. As it says in 1 Corinthians 5, another verse, much like this connecting authority in presence, it says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my, my spirit, Paul speaking, is present with the power, authority, of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The command to make disciples of all nations is the priority of the whole church for the whole age because it comes from all authority and it comes with a lasting presence, the presence of Jesus, which leads to our second point here. Making disciples of all people should be the priority of the whole church for the whole age. For the whole age. Because it's been delivered to every disciple till the end of the age. To every disciple until the end of the age. Look with me back at verse 19. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The Great Commission is not just for the 11 disciples. Nor is it just for missionaries. Nor is it just for pastors. It's not just for the super spiritual or for the gregariously outgoing personality. But it is for you today, here and now. And it is for you, even you, even if you are just a member of this church and a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. I say just in quotes because that's, but that statement we, we say often when we feel like we don't have any responsible role in the church, but being a member of the body of Christ is a gloriously supernatural reality and we shouldn't make light of it. Making disciples of all peoples should be the priority of the whole church for the whole age because it's delivered to every disciple till the end of the age. How do we lose sight of this? How do we miss that? It's been the tradition of some, particularly those who were considered hyper-Calvinists, that the heathen would be reached by God without the church. Or like the churches of William Carey's day, that we'd already mentioned, that the Great Commission was descriptive in a particular command to the disciples. It was descriptive for them in their time, but not prescriptive for us in our time today. Well, I would argue that both of these are wrong readings of the text. Both, first, one wrongly reads a particular emphasis of the reader's theology into the text, and the other is just poor hermeneutics and logic from the text. But the, really, today, I, I don't think, you know, historical problems aside, hermeneutics aside, that's our issue today. Our main issue is that we simply put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable when we look at this text. There are 
many of us in our modern day that would agree that the Great Commission is important. But functionally, they seem to be saying with their actions, that is not for them. This is obvious because they simply just don't make it a priority. Why is this? Well, I think as you look at these verses, particularly in verse 19 again, the English says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And people hear these two words. They hear go, and they hear nations. And they think, well, that must be for missionaries. I'm not a missionary. I guess it's not for me. But, to, to, to leave us with the best, many are saying, I will do what I can to support missionaries and help them go. There is truth in the first part of the logic. This must be for missionaries. Yes. This text is written to stir up members of the church to go, and they become missionaries. We must be going and bringing the gospel to all nations. Nations that have no access to gospel preaching churches, no access to the gospel proclaimed absolutely. Missionaries must go. This is critical. There's also important truth in the latter part of that logic. I'm not a missionary, but I need to do all that I can to help and support missionaries to go. Absolutely. Romans 10, 14 through 15 makes this clear. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? Missionaries must be sent, supported, in order to go and prioritize making disciples of all nations. But these perspectives themselves are not the problem. The problem is that this logic misses the central command. A command delivered for all disciples of Jesus. What's the central command of Matthew 28, 19? It's to make disciples. The central command is make disciples and everything else flows out of that central command. Some say the interpretation of this text in English should be more like this. As you are going, meaning as you go about your work, as you go about your life, make disciples. And the other participles that come from it is baptizing and teaching. So make disciples. I think that's right in some sense, that we don't, but we don't at the same time want to lose sight of the intentionality that comes with that word go. There's an intentional placing and purpose of that in the translation the way it is. Go, therefore, and make disciples. It's purposeful because it, it brings an emphasis on doing something. You have to rearrange your life to get this done. I agree with Don Carson's analysis here. We should read it more like go and make disciples with the emphasis on making disciples because that's the priority and command here. There is an intentionality to it, a directing and a reorienting, reorienting of one's life kind of intentionality to this command for the purpose of making this path which we seek to glorify God kind of intentionality make disciples. But there's yet one question we have not answered. Is this just for the 11? Or is this for all disciples, all disciples, all members of the church in the whole age? How do we know for certain that this command is for us today? Look again at verse 20. Jesus makes this beautiful promise, but think about it as it's applied to our question. Jesus says, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. What age is Jesus talking about? Well, it's this age. 
this present age, the age that began with his first coming and that will end with his second coming. This is the age that Jesus is referring to. Yet Jesus promises to be with you, as it's stated here, until the end of the age. Are these disciples still with us? Are they still here? Are the apostles still living? That would be weird, probably. It might even resolve a lot of church divisions and conflicts over what this says or that says and what that meant, but no. So who is Jesus going to be with until the end of the age? His disciples. Because his disciples make disciples who make disciples, 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 who make disciples until the end of the age. Logically, this must be written for our instruction. We stand in a long line of faithful disciple-making disciples. It's like a genealogy of faithfulness that has gone before us, leading to all of us who are in here today because some disciple shared the gospel with us and taught us what it means to follow Christ. Making disciples of all people should be the priority of the whole church for the whole age because it was delivered to every disciple till the end of the age. The Great Commission is for you. Do you live your life with abandon for all other endeavors except to make Christ known? Do you toil and struggle with all of His energy that He powerfully works within you till Christ is formed by His Spirit in another person, in another people? This mission is for you. Your old strivings and ambitions ended when you died in Christ. And when you rose again in new life in Him. You live for a new purpose now. The purpose of the knowledge of the glory of God covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is the new purpose that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5. when he says that we're new creation ambassadors for Christ, reconciled to reconcile. So the question is not, am I called to this, but will I obey? Will I obey? There is one important thing to understand here. Also, the last point is this is not a solo mission. This is not a lone wolf special ops kind of work. But this is community work. This is church work. Making disciples of all people should be the priority of the whole church for the whole age. The whole church for the whole age because, one, it comes from all authority with His lasting presence. Two, it's delivered to every disciple to the end of the age. And lastly, our final point, for the whole church because it can only be carried out by the church as a whole. It can only be carried out for the church as a whole. Jesus continues in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The Great Commission is a command not just for the individual, the individual Christian, but for the whole body, the local church. Individuals operating solo apart from the church are not meant to be the normal pattern for carrying out this particular command in its participles, baptizing and teaching. One should not baptize regularly outside of the local church. And one cannot obey all that Christ commanded outside of the local church. 
Baptism is publicly is, is a public community proclamation of alignment with Christ and his death. Both the members of the church are recognizing and affirming this, and spectating unbelievers are seeing something take place in the baptism of a new believer unlike anything they've ever seen before. It's the gospel made visible. It's a reenactment of what happened to them in Christ, being immersed into Christ's death and raised up into the newness of life in a resurrection. To really understand the church's role in this, we need to look at Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 again. The only two places in Matthew's gospel where Jesus uses the word church. These passages share an important phrase, one that might sound strange to our modern ears when you hear, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In both passages, Jesus gives to the church the keys of the kingdom to bind and to loose. Most Reformed Reformation commentators agreed this is the authority of the church to proclaim the gospel and affirm the confession of believers in baptism and the Lord's Supper by loosing them from their sins in Christ. And most agree that it is the authority to disciple wayward members by withholding baptism in the Lord's Supper by binding them in their rebellion and letting them go Luther says it this way, The ministry of the Word belongs to all members of the church. To bind and to loose clearly is nothing else than to proclaim and to apply the gospel. For what, it is, what is it to loose if not to announce the forgiveness of sins before God? What is it to bind except to withdraw the gospel and to glare the retention of sins? Whether they, the Roman Catholic Church that is, want to or not, they must concede that the keys are the exercise of the ministry of the Word and the ordinances which belong to all Christians as members of the church. The rest of the New Testament also affirms this. All but one example of baptism in Acts and in the epistles is in the context of the whole church. Either baptism into an existing church or forming a new church. The only example that's a variant is when Philip appears on the scene and he baptizes this Ethiopian eunuch and then he disappears. That's not usually our example, I don't think. Not our experience. So I wouldn't use this as a regular practice for us. But what the rest of the New Testament shows us is baptism is for the church. We cannot see the New Testament. It, we, we must see that the New Testament ties baptism and teaching along with the Lord's Supper, as special functions of the local church and should not be practiced disconnected from the local church. Therefore, making disciples, which Jesus attached these two participles, baptizing and teaching, is for the whole church, in which the church as a whole is to be involved by affirming and committing to the care and maturity of those new disciples who are joining the church. Making disciples of all people is not just a solo venture. It is not for the most outgoing or evangelistic amongst us. It is not just for pastors or missionaries. Disciples are to be made in the context of the local church as members of a local church, participating in the functions of the local church, benefiting from the diversity of gifts of all the members of the local church. Whenever a member of the church sees and takes the responsibility and the privilege of one another and the responsibility of any newcomers that may be among them, it's a beautiful display of this glorious gospel in which we've believed. Every member has a role. Every member has a gift. Every member being built up. 
Ephesians 4.11 says it this way, And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. Making disciples of all people should be the priority of the whole church for the whole age. Because one, it comes from all authority with a lasting presence. Number two, it's delivered to every disciple to the end of the age. And number three, it can only be carried out by the church as a whole. So let's finish up our time with four implications today. As we seek to fulfill this command, to obey this command and make disciples as a priority. I'll keep it short and to the point. They're, they're simple. What do we do with this is my primary question. What do we do with this? So out of that flow, four questions. I want you to ask yourself. Who is discipling me? Who is intentionally discipling me? If you are a believer in Christ, who is intentionally discipling me? If you're a man, maybe find an older man, not necessarily in age, but in maturity, in faith. If you're a woman, find an older, mature woman in faith to disciple you. Ask them to do this. They're not going to come to you. You need to approach them oftentimes. Spend time with one another watching their lives and how they pursue God in prayer, how they study the Word and how they do evangelism. Watch how they love their spouses, how they instruct their children. Learn what it means to fight sin, to walk in holiness, to be above reproach. Pick a book of the Bible and read it together or simply apply the sermons that you're hearing right here in this local church in your own life. Work together each week in this and pray together. Make a plan to be out sharing the Gospel together. This is not complicated. We shouldn't make it complicated. It's simple. Who is discipling you? Number two, who are you intentionally discipling? Ask yourself this. Who are you intentionally discipling? If you are married, husbands, at the very least, you should be pouring into your wives. If you have children, you should be discipling your children. If your kids are not yet born again, don't think of evangelism and discipleship as two very separate and distinct things. They're not. If you're, it, they, they are very much together because those who are outside of Christ need the gospel. Those in Christ need the gospel continually proclaimed and applied to them. Pursuing, pursue finding someone outside of your immediate family in your church specifically to invest in spiritually. Ask them if they would like to do some of these things that we just mentioned. Remember, this can be mutual. You are not the master here. Jesus is. You are helping one another to be like Him and follow Him. Imitate one another as you imitate Christ. Third question. Who is doing this beside you? So first, who is discipling me? Sorry. Who is discipling you? Who is doing this beside you? Why do I say that? What does that mean? Well, anytime we see the disciples are sent out, like the 70 or the 72 and, and in Luke 10 or Matthew 10, it's always in pairs. Even when missionaries are sent out in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas, right? They're going together. Paul is not doing this alone. He's together with other Christians. It's not for loners, but it's for the church as a whole, right? This could be the person that's either discipling you 
or the person that you're discipling that could go with you, but who is it that will go with you to make disciples and to proclaim the gospel? Don't do it alone. We shouldn't do it alone. Number four, the last question. Who are you seeking to reach with the gospel? So who's discipling me? Who are you discipling? Who's doing it besides you? And who are you seeking to reach with the gospel? Always have that one or two or five or ten. It doesn't matter how many. It all depends on your capacity. Just find someone that you can intentionally engage with the gospel who is an unbeliever. Moms, this might, this might look different for you. You might not have the freedom and the time to get out like your husbands do. That might be your kids because they're un, if they're unbelievers. That's okay. Dads, think about people that you spend time with at work. Everyone else, think about your neighbors, your friends, people you meet in normal routines of your life. Pray that the Lord would give you the next disciple, the next person to be pouring into and investing your life. By the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, you too can make disciples. You have everything that you need. The authority of Jesus, the presence of His Spirit with you, the church of Christ around you, and the Word of God with you. So go then and make disciples of all peoples, bringing them into the membership of this church through baptism in the name of our triune God and teach them to follow Jesus. That's our mandate. This is our priority. I will end with a, with a quote from a book called The Trellis and the Vine to hopefully stir us up and encourage us in this work. It says, in this time, it is time to say goodbye to our small and self-oriented ambitions and to abandon ourselves to the cause of Christ and His gospel. God has a plan that will determine the destiny of every person and nation in the world, and it is unfolding here and now as the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached and the Holy Spirit is poured out. Is there anything more vital to be doing in our world? It is more important than our jobs, our families, our pastimes. Yes, even more important than, our, than the comfort and security of the familiar in our church life programs. We need to capture the radicalism of what Jesus said to the young man who wanted to return and bury his father. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Luke 9.60. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we need your help and your grace. Lord, out of all that Christ is and what he has done for us and who we are in him, help us to move and be obedient servants, filled with your spirit for the work of ministry that you have called us to. We know that you have prepared beforehand good works. And Lord, we ask that you would give us the grace sufficient enough to, to complete those good works for your glory, for your namesake. We know that you are with us to persevere us in persistence until you come again. And Lord, we all long, I know we do, to see you again, face to see you face to face. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.